The Me Too movement has led many people to share their experiences with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It has sparked conversations and controversy and maybe even cultural change. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about Me Too and its impact. I'm Charity Nebbe. Domestic violence usually happens in private. It's unseen, underreported, and leaving the situation is almost always easier said than done. It's also far more common than you might think. One in three women in the United States and one in four men have experienced some kind of domestic violence. That's according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Behind each of those numbers is a story, and we're bringing you one today. Tiffany Allen is the founder and president of the Soaring Hearts Foundation. She is also a survivor of domestic violence. In 2009, I met a gentleman that um, I started to date. And, um, you know, I just found him to be very charming, um, funny, attractive. And, uh, you know, we just started a normal course of a relationship. And um, in dating him, I became aware that in his past, he had some run-ins with the law, um, that he had been incarcerated for a brief amount of time, and I asked him about those charges, and they were explained to me as um, burglary charges. And I felt that I did my due diligence in looking at public record and looking at those charges, and they were what he told me. And so, and he said he was young and made mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. um, His first charge was when he was 18. He hadn't been in any trouble for um, the five years prior to us dating, at least that I could see from public record, and that was matching with his story. Um, He explained those charges as burglary charges, and since he hadn't been in trouble for some time and his life seemed to be very put together um, at the time that we met and while we dated, I thought, you know, that that was part of his past. Um, We dated for about five months before the first um, instance of abuse occurred, and in comparison to what would happen later, it was um, a very diminutive instance of abuse, um, even though I don't think any instance of domestic violence is small. Um, He smacked me in my face repeatedly, and um, I left. I stopped dating him at that time. Um, However, like a lot of victims, he um, called me and apologized and told me that it was due to having too much alcohol that night and begged me to think about the past five months that we had spent together and how we had never even had an argument before where he had called me a name. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, maybe this really was a mistake, and I thought about mistakes I had made in my own life. And I gave him the benefit of the doubt, and I started dating him again. And when I did that, I really didn't feel like I I went in with my eyes closed. I was, um, you know, very aware of the circumstances that had just occurred. And um, we dated for three more months um, without any violence or what I would consider to be red flags happening. And I did really start to feel like maybe it was a mistake and that this was not characteristic behavior of him. Um, But he was also trying to speed the relationship up exponentially when we got back together. He was talking about um, things that really hadn't been talked about in the relationship before, like um, moving in together, getting married, having children. And those were all things that he like wanted to happen yesterday. And so um, as the relationship progressed, we did move in together. And it didn't take even a week for violence to start after that happened. Um, 
I realized quickly that that very first instance of abuse was actually characteristic of him. I just had not seen it at that point, and um, I needed to get him out of my life. Um, so that's that's a lot harder to do than it, it sounds. I mean, at that point, what did you feel like your options were to end the relationship? You know, I was really naive. I didn't really have any um, education about domestic violence, and I, I absolutely did not know that the most dangerous time for a victim was when they were trying to leave. And so um, a couple of my friends were aware of the circumstances that I was in, and I talked to them about it. And um, we, I think we all just kind of thought that as long as I wasn't breaking up with him because of the violence and that the, as long as the conversation wasn't built around you know, yesterday you slapped me or strangled me or whatever had happened. If there was another reason um, causing that breakup, that it would be safe. And um, I also was trying to be like very nice and flexible about the breakup. Um, He obviously was living with me at the time. And so moving out was going to be a part of that. And so I, uh, when I did have the conversation with him, it was not about violence. It was about another mistake that he had made that I had found out about. Um, He was asking other girls out on dates behind my back. And so I felt safe talking to him about that mistake. And so that was what I based that conversation around. And I I thought I was being extremely malleable in the breakup. I presented it as a break, knowing myself that it would be breakup forever, Um, not necessarily presenting it that way. And then also giving him, you know, a couple weeks to move out and find somewhere to go. I wasn't you know, throwing him and his things outside or anything um, aggressive like that. And so I, I thought that that conversation and, and that course of action would be safe. And I was and very it, and wrong. And it seemed like it was proceeding like you planned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, he didn't want to break up. And so we had the conversation for a good amount of time before he realized that I was not going to relent and agreed to move out and work on himself and I could work on me and was, of course, asking if things went well, if he could come back home. And I was agreeing to that, even though I knew it wasn't going to be an option. Um, He seemed to be fine with everything that was going on. And um, I went outside and came back in. And when I came back in, he was waiting for me and he put me down on the ground and started choking me. And this turned into uh, just an incredible ordeal. It wasn't a one incident of violence like you had experienced with him in the past. What happened? Um, he, After he strangled me, he backed away from me and apologized. And um, after any sort of abuse happened, he was always very paranoid that I was going to call and tell someone, whether it be a family member, a friend, or to call the police. And so I would never be really let out of his sight for a while, for a good period of time. And so he needed to go to the mall um, in order to pay a cell phone bill, and that that meant I had to go. Um, I was very shaken up from being strangled, and I was not ready to be around people. And so I was begging him to let me stay in the car when we got to the mall. Um, He was afraid I was going to leave him there if he went inside. And so I gave him the car keys and just told him to go ahead and go in, and he did. At that point, I called a friend and told her what had happened um, when, when I had this conversation with him. And we knew that there were like extra steps that had to be taken because my home was now his residence if he didn't leave willingly. And we didn't necessarily know what what those were. So my friend had said, oh, well, I'm going to call a mutual friend of ours who's a police officer and I'm going to find out what these extra steps are. And I said, "Okay, that's fine. And so she did that. And um, she called me back and she said, he doesn't know what they are. He has to do some checking. And he did know what they were. But um, my mom is a 
um, a sergeant at the Des Moines Police Department. She's also in law enforcement. And so what he did was he called my mom and said, I don't know if you know what's happening with your daughter, um, but this is what I was just told. And so for me, the next thing that happened was he came out of the mall and he was hungry. So we were in Bebop's drive-thru and my mom was calling my cell phone. And when I answered, I could tell just by her tone of voice that we are, you know, we know how our moms sound when they know everything that's happening, um, that she knew. And I was very afraid that she was going to say something that he was going to overhear. But she didn't. Um, She just said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, oh, we're at Bebop's. We're getting something to eat. And she said, okay, well, are you going home after this? And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, okay, well, I'm going to swing by. And she sort of made up this reason that she was going to come over, that I could tell him that um, she was going to have me sign a piece of paper about my mortgage. And um, I got off the phone with her, and he was extremely um, paranoid about why she was calling, definitely why she was coming over. Um, But I had, you know, that reason that she had given me to let him know. We went home. My mom came by. She um, told me to get in her car and proceeded to drive around my neighborhood telling me that I needed to call law enforcement. I did not want to do that. Um, I didn't want people to know that this was happening to me. I was very embarrassed that this was going on. I also thought that I could handle this on my own. That was one of the big things. And um, I knew that if law enforcement came, that they all knew my mom. And I was afraid that if they came, that they would say, okay, well, you can go stay with your mom, and this is his residence, so he gets to stay here. And if that was what happened, what was I going to come home to? I was very concerned about my home and all of my belongings. Um, But in that course of thinking, I never, ever thought that I was potentially making a decision between my things and my life. And I told my mom that I was an adult. I was almost 30 years old at the time. She needed to let me make my own decisions. I wasn't calling law enforcement, and she needed to take me home. And she started to cry and tell me that I didn't understand um, how dangerous the situation I was in was. And I kept telling her I did and that she needed to take me home. She very reluctantly took me back to my residence. And um, later that evening, Scotty took me hostage in my home. He beat me for four and a half hours using his hands, knees, and feet. He hit me with a wrought iron cross until it broke into two pieces, strangled me, um, knocked me unconscious through hitting my head up against a hardwood stair, and bit me all over my body and urinated on me. Um, I was really lucky to escape the house alive. How did that end? Um, He really just got tired of assaulting me. Um, He had been assaulting me for so long that I think, you know, his body was running out of adrenaline to really do that. Um, He stepped away from me and um, basically asked me if I was okay. And um, he said, who did this to you? And at that point, I thought, you know, is he trying to make me feel like I'm crazy? And I didn't know whether I should even answer him or not. And I just barely squeaked out, you did. And when he looked at me and realized the severity of what he had done and what had happened, he started to cry and um, yell out loudly. And I just... um, My only way I thought of getting out of it was to get him to go to sleep. And so I tried to soothe him and tell him that everything would be okay, that I loved him, that no one was going to find out about what happened, and that we would figure it out in the morning, and that right now he just needed to go to sleep. And I got him to lay down on the living room floor. Um, I covered him up with a blanket, put a pillow underneath his head, and got him a glass of water. And I just sat there and rubbed his arm, telling him those things over and over again until he fell asleep. And at that time, I found my phone and my keys because he had taken those from me and text three of my friends and said, if you get this text message, please send the police to my house. No lights, no sirens, because I was afraid if he heard them coming, he would finish the circumstances. And um, and please don't call my cell phone. And one of my friends got that message and called 911. 
I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too. Right now, I'm talking with Tiffany Allison, founder of the Soaring Hearts Foundation and a victim of domestic violence. She's been telling us about the night her ex-boyfriend nearly beat her to death. I asked her what happened after her friend called 911 to send the police to her house. He was charged with um, second, I'm sorry, he was charged with felony domestic abuse with a weapon and false imprisonment. He took a plea deal to the felony domestic abuse charge. Um, while I was going through the court process, um, part of that is a victim impact statement. And when I went to do that, I didn't ask for leniency for him, but I asked the court to provide whatever resources they could to make sure that he never, ever did this to another human being again. And when I did that, the judge was pretty snarky with me. And he said, "Miss Allison, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Mr. Park's criminal history, but I'm going to read it to you. And he read me Scotty's criminal history, those second degree burglary charges that I previously told you about. And then he said, all of those charges are assaults on women. And so that was the first time that I really became aware that um, he had a history of doing this to people and that I was actually his fifth victim. Wow. Um, he was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. And because of good time in the state of Iowa, he served 10 and a half months. And then he was released. And then within a year, he reoffended with another lady. Tiffany, there are so many misconceptions, so many stereotypes about people who experience domestic violence. And here you are. Clearly, you are very intelligent. You are an educated woman. You thought you were in control of your life. I'm sure that there are people listening right now who think, how could this have happened to her? Is that a question you ask yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, going through the healing part of this, that particular thing really made me sort of lose myself or who I thought that I was because that was never something that would have happened to my my vision of myself. Um, and I and I wasn't really sure how it, how it had escalated to that point. Um, but everything happened very quickly. Um, his violence escalated so quickly in a very short amount of time. I will be completely honest and tell you that this was someone that I loved at that time. And I didn't even... I didn't believe that he was capable of doing something um, on the level that he did. And and I had no idea that um, that was a normal part of his life to do something like that. Sharing your story is so important because obviously it helps us understand better how someone can be in a, in a situation like that. Thinking back... It was so hard for you to leave. Why was it so hard for you to leave, even though you were hurting so badly? You know, first and foremost, I think that I'm a person who always looks for the good in other people. And um, I thought that I was in love with someone who needed help and needed my help. And so it was very hard to um, try to break that tie, especially because when anything did happen, he was always putting the responsibility on me, um, whether that was... Um, It was my fault that it happened or whether it was that he needed my help to get the help that he needed. Um, It was always my responsibility. And so that was very hard. Um, The other reasons that it was hard were just trying to navigate how to do that, you know, how, how to leave. He was in my home. I wasn't sure how to get him out. I didn't know what the best route to take was. Um, I had no idea the amount of danger that I was putting myself in by having that conversation with him the way that I did. Um, just you, multiple reasons. Yeah. After this experience, clearly you became galvanized. You became an advocate. You founded 
the Soaring Hearts Foundation to help others who experience abuse like this and to, and to give victims uh, an idea of what their rights are and to help them as they become survivors. What galvanized you? Why did you decide that there was this need that you could fill to help other people who have experiences like this one? I had never been a part of the criminal justice system. And so when I was going through the court process, um, since he had been through the court process so many times, he I felt like he understood every single thing that was happening. And I didn't necessarily have that great of an understanding of what was going on. Um, when he reoffended, there were some things that really stuck out to me. And the big one was the good time, because when I heard the judge say two and a half years for my case, I thought that was how much time I had to get my life back together, to do the things I needed to do to feel safe. And um, that was what I expected. So in 10 months, I was very shocked. I wasn't ready. Um, I was very afraid still and still dealing with things um, with him and with the relationship at that time. And so when he reoffended, and I heard the 15-year sentence because I was at that sentencing, I, I really sighed with relief. I thought, okay, he's going to be gone for a long time. He's not going to be able to do this to someone else for a long time. Maybe he'll age out of this behavior. You know, I was having a lot of thoughts about that. And the crisis advocacy worker turned to me and said, you know that he's only going to be in there for two or three years, right? And I was just like, how is that possible? And so that was the biggest thing that galvanized me was that, um, you know, I just did not want him or someone like him that has repeatedly hurt people in the past and, and been very violent in their assaults to be able to just get a slap on the wrist. Because for me, it obviously was not working. He had had six victims who had reported and who knows how many women that have not come forward that he dated. And I just felt like we were really putting the community at jeopardy by handling the situation that way. Do you feel safe now? When he's incarcerated, I do. But when he's out in May, you fear for your safety? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's been released once, you know, before, obviously. And it was just like a, a grenade went off in my life when that happened. And I expect that... You know, I work to make this time different, of course, but I feel like it's probably going to have some of the same effects as last time. Tiffany Allison is a domestic violence survivor. She is the founder and president of the Soaring Hearts Foundation. Stay with us, Tiffany, but I want to introduce a few other people into this conversation. First, Lindsay Pingle is director of community engagement at the Iowa Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Hello, Lindsay. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And uh, Tiffany did a wonderful job sharing her personal experience and, and letting us have an inside view of one story of domestic violence. Give us the bigger picture. How big a problem is this in sure. Iowa? Absolutely. Um, well, at the um, Iowa Coalition Against Domestic Violence, uh, we're a statewide organization, and we have 21 programs across the state of Iowa that work um, directly with survivors, uh, family members of survivors, and communities who've been impacted by intimate partner violence. Uh, last year, this amazing network of member programs served approximately 30,000 victims across the state of Iowa. This is a crime that often goes unreported. Mm -hmm. How big do you feel the problem actually is? I would characterize uh, intimate partner violence as a, it's an epidemic. It's a health crisis. It absolutely is a problem that impacts anyone, regardless of age, race, gender, economic status. It thrives in secrecy and shame. Um, it's a crime where you're asking somebody 
you're asking two people who are in a relationship, two people who love each other. You're asking one of those individuals um, to punish the person that they love, and that creates barriers and obstacles that are unlike other crimes that occur um, around us every single day. Um, While we know that our network of programs serve 30,000 victims, we know there's other victim service agencies across the state that are reporting numbers, and then we know there are a lot of people um, who aren't reporting. So I know that number is low in terms of who is being impacted each and every day. We think of this as a a problem for women, Mm -hmm. and that is the bigger problem. I was surprised. I shared that statistic earlier from the National Coalition Against Domestic Mm -hmm. Violence. One in three women and Mm -hmm. one in four men in the United States have experienced violence at the hands of an intimate partner. Those are shocking numbers. And I am surprised that the number for men is as high as it is. Tell me what we know about domestic violence directed at men. Um, What we know is men are just as likely to experience domestic violence as women. There are a lot of um, norms that go with um, when we think of men and we think of violence and we, you know, there's a lot of shame that I know men feel in reporting um, because they're seen as maybe the stronger sex or that's kind of been, you know, this masculinity, take care of yourself, fight back culture that men have kind of grown up with that we've all grown up with. Um, it makes it a little bit harder for them to report. But I think there's a big misconception now that when we think of domestic violence, we think of physical abuse. And that's only one form of intimate partner violence. Um, You know, we're looking at, when we look at all the forms, we're looking at financial abuse, we're looking at physical abuse, we're looking at psychological abuse, we are looking at um, economic abuse, so many different forms of it. So again, when I say that This is an epidemic that thrives in shame. It's so many different forms. And what we have this kind of picture of what we think maybe a victim or a survivor looks like or the signs we should be looking for, that's not necessarily what you're going to see or what someone is going to be experiencing. So I think that in order to not only understand – well, the number of male victims um, is on the rise and more men are feeling comfortable coming forward and sharing their experiences. We also need an understanding um, as a public in a conversation about the different forms of domestic violence and what we need to be doing um, to curb it at all of its forms. I want to bring Toria Jones into the conversation now as well. She is sexual assault advocate for Webster County at Chrysler Crisis Intervention Service. Hello, Toria. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here today. And I know you work with survivors of sexual abuse, sexual assault, and domestic violence. Um, Mm -hmm. Something, obviously, we've had a lot of conversations about sexual assault uh, Mm -hmm. in the public eye recently. Uh, domestic violence can be a kind of sexual assault, but why do you think it's important to focus on the the definition, to, to talk about the difference between domestic violence and what we what goes under the umbrella of sexual assault? Right. Um, so a lot of times, um, I guess what people don't realize, kind of like what Lindsay was saying, is that 
with domestic violence, there's um, multiple components to it. And yes, so domestic abuse and sexual assault oftentimes run together. Uh, when clients come to us, they usually say, like, my partner also, um, you know, sexually violates me and physically abuses me and things like that. So, um, yeah, we often try to, whenever we're doing prevention work, we try to tell people that um, sexual assault is actually, um, although it's like a wide like term, I guess you can say, or a broad term, um, domestic abuse can also kind of flow in and kind of, I guess, merge waters in that way. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Sorry. <laughs> uh, tell, tell me about the work you do. If someone mm-hmm. in your area okay. is experiencing domestic abuse and they come to you for help, what happens? Um, so it's kind of, um, so we like to meet survivors where they're at. So oftentimes it's kind of different for each survivor. So sometimes we meet them at the hospital and it's like like right after the abuse or the violence occurred. Um, and so we work with them at that point. Um, stage in their life, trying to get them to a safe place. Um, We collaborate a lot with DSOC, uh, the shelter in Fort Dodge. So if they are looking or ready to flee, we set that up for them or get them a hotel stay or try to brainstorm who you can stay with and, you know, just looking for a safe place. Um, And then oftentimes, too, we um, have survivors come to us when the violence has occurred maybe months ago or years ago or thing, and they're still affected by it. And then how we can um, either work with, like, emotional healing. Um, We like to give them healthy coping skills and uh, holistic healing and things of that nature. And if we can't offer anything to that person that they're looking for or the needs that they're looking for, we often refer them over to people like, hey, um, there's this therapist or this um, other service that you can use to help with that or things like that. So we do a lot and we also meet with survivors at different stages of their healing. So it's usually unique to the person if that makes sense. Well, and Lindsay, earlier you mentioned uh, overseeing 21 programs across the state of Iowa. There are many shelters and services in in local communities, in in counties that provide support as well. But one of the the things you've been using lately is a a mobile model for delivering service. This is as opposed to the shelter-based model, which is, I think, something that a lot of people are familiar with. What is the mobile model? How does that work? Sure. Um, Well, as Toria was saying, um, as the agency that she works for, Crisis Intervention Service, as well as Monsoon, who Hugh is here speaking about today, um, the mobile service delivery really is putting advocates in all 99 counties across the state. So across the state, we have approximately 350 advocates. And as we know, with Iowa being 95% rural versus the 5% urban, um, we want to make sure that when someone calls in, say, Webster County, and you know maybe they don't have access to a car or um, they want to stay in their home, they want the person who's harming them to leave, we want to make sure that an advocate is available right there in their community, can go and get them, sit down with them, whether it's at a coffee shop or it's coming into their office um, within that town and kind of going over, you know, their situation and what safety plan they want to put into place and, you know, what kind of freedom from this relationship looks like for them. Um, 
that's kind of what drives us. What we've learned over the past, over several years, but really implemented in the last five is when men or women were calling our programs, they don't necessarily want to leave their home and come into shelter for a number of different reasons. They want to stay in their community. Um, they might have children. They don't want to move out of the school districts. They have jobs they want to stay at. They want to stay in their home, have the person who's harming them leave. Um, so because of this model, because we're making services more accessible and making sure that advocates are available, since 2013, we've been able to serve 66% more survivors of domestic violence because of this than we had before. With me, Lindsay Pingle, Director of Community Engagement at the Iowa Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Toria Jones is here, sexual assault advocate for Webster County at Crisis Intervention Service. And Tiffany Allison, the founder and president of the Soaring Hearts Foundation. Domestic violence is sadly common across cultures in the United States, but coming from or being part of a minority culture can create some special challenges, some very difficult challenges in dealing with abuse. And the Iowa Coalition Against Domestic Violence works with a number of different cultural-specific advocacy groups. One of them is Monsoon, United Asian Women of Iowa. And Hugh Pham is here. She is assistant director of Monsoon. Hello, Hugh. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about some of the special challenges that, that can be created in, in your community, but also in other cultural communities uh, with domestic and sexual assault victims. Why is this so challenging if you may come from a, a culture that is not the dominant culture? Um, I think one of the challenges is, is uh, with the systems themselves, uh, criminal court systems, um, DHS, not being fully equipped to sort of handle the influence of race, um, uh, of culture, languages, and other demographic factors. So, for example, um, you know, we have uh, women who call the police, and if they don't speak English, they perhaps have a spouse who does speak English. If it's in a case where um, it is a, a foreign-born immigrant with an American husband, for example, um, who does the arrest? When the police come and ask what's going on, a lot a lot of times these women are not able to advocate for themselves. So that's just one of the challenges. So that language can be a tremendous barrier. Yeah. And then, of, of course, um, some of our um, our cultures themselves don't, um, our community themselves need to be educated in terms of what is domestic violence. Um, there are issues, you know, the domestic violence is a spectrum, and a lot of times we talk about that. There's different types of abuses. A lot of times um, you know, our community members don't know that this is an abuse. Financial abuse, emotional abuse, does it count? You know, um, you know, they think that they have to be physically abused and pretty severely to get any, uh, any sort of assistance. There are also cultures where uh, a dominant male in the family is more typical or more culturally accepted. Is that also a challenge? That is, um, you know, certainly we, we work with um, American-born and um, foreign-born. And so, you know, our, but still culturally, a lot, uh, we come from, you know, uh, very patriarchal communities. And I would say that um, it isn't just um, Asian Pacific Islanders. Um, but yes, there is um, lots of families where a lot of times it is the males who uh, control the finances. Um, there's an expectation that w women 
are doing the domestic duties. There's sometimes an undervaluing of the domestic duties. Um, that is another element to the abuse. So, for example, if you um, have sacrificed sort of your career aspirations to stay at home and take care of the children, well, you need to do all of the cleaning. You need to do this. You need to do that. That is just your role. Um, and those are lots of the, you know, the 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 areas of um, education and prevention we do to talk about, um, you know, exactly what domestic violence is and also that, um, you know, that gender and the, uh, patriarchy is sort of affecting those kinds of norms. There are a number of women who come here from other countries who haven't had much of a relationship with uh, the man that they marry, that they come here to marry, uh, either meeting online and uh, they're they could have acquired a fiancé visa so they could come here and there's only about three months to play with there before you actually have to get married uh, on that visa. Does that create some very difficult and dangerous situations for women? Uh, definitely. Immigration issues are something uh, that's very unique to our communities. Um, I think you're talking about the the K visa or you know what they call the fiancé visa. And um, and also in terms of these marriages that are happening very quickly, um, you know, we used to call them mail order brides, but a lot of times people are meeting up um, online. Um, there are um, even you know agencies um, overseas that will help to um, make these meetings even easier. Uh, say they don't speak the same language, but there are people who would be interpreting emails and um, letters and other exchanges. Uh, to really uh, help support that relationship. Uh, the problem is when it's a relationship where the power is out of whack, right? And then there's a, a domestic abuse. Um, and so a lot of times, say, for example, in a K-Visa situation, they're here um, only temporarily, and they have to be married within uh, 90 days. And if they're not, they have to return. A lot of times w these women come here with the expectation um, that this is a, a marriage that will last forever, and they get abused here with that person here, really Really, never really planning on making that marriage happen, um, and they uh, experience lots of um, sexual uh, sexual exploitation exploitation here, and they have left their countries where they have you know left uh, their jobs, um, they've left their secure um, their networks. I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is Unsettled: Mapping Me Too from Iowa Public Radio. In 2017, the Iowa State Legislature issued a 25% budget cut to victims' services in the state. As a result of that, Transformative Healing, a victim service program for LGBTQ individuals, Iowa Arch, which aided multicultural victims, and statewide sexual assault hotline services, lost funding. Lindsay Pingle, who's Director of Community Engagement at the Iowa Coalition Against Domestic Violence, says this was devastating. I asked Tiffany Allison, who's a survivor and has lobbied for more funding and changes to Iowa law to keep abusers in prison longer, what she thought about the changes in services. It's hard to be strong enough as a victim to ask for help. And so when you ask for help and the help isn't there, that's an even bigger problem. And that's not something um, you know that I want to see happen. That's not something that I want to see continue. And I hope that our legislature will make some different decisions um, in the upcoming session. With the time that we have left, I, I want to read an email that we received. This is from Shelby. She says, domestic violence is a case so near and dear to me. I've met both Tiffany and Lindsay, and they're such inspirations. 
Thank you for spreading awareness and breaking down the silence abusers thrive off of. I run a nonprofit fundraiser event every fall called Ladies Day Out, and the the proceeds we make from raffle donations are donated to the Iowa Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I, too, have been in an abusive situation. My abuser was charming and made me feel wanted. We were engaged within a month of dating, and shortly after, I got pregnant. I tried leaving four times before I was actually able to do it. Like Tiffany mentioned, I believe that it wasn't his real personality. I believed he was struggling with alcoholism and it made him into a terrible person. I believed that he needed me and actually wanted my help to change. She says, Tiffany has been such an inspiration to me and to so many others. Thank you for being the voices of survivors everywhere. And with the time that we have left, Tiffany, I would love for you to tell me what what would you say to someone who's experiencing domestic violence in their relationship right now? What do you want he or she to know? You know, I just want them to know that they're not alone, um, that there is help out there and that they should seek that help um, and to get out of that relationship um, as quickly and as safely as they possibly can. Um, I know that it's so difficult. Um, it's a difficult situation to navigate. It's difficult emotionally, mentally, physically, and um, I just hope that they will all seek the help that they need. I think about your story and I think about your mother and I think about your friends who knew you were in trouble and wanted to help you, but it's so much more complicated than just saying, hey, I know you're in trouble and I want to help you. I want you to get out of this situation. What would you say to people who have friends or loved ones in a situation like this, what can we do? Support the person that's in the relationship, um, no matter what decisions that they're making. I think a lot of times um, people on the outside, everything seems really black and white and everything seems really easy to decipher. And for the person that's in that relationship, that is just not the case. Um, There's a lot of manipulation. There's a lot of, you know, emotion involved. A lot of times we know that what's happening to us is not good, um, but we do still care about the person that's perpetrating those abuses. And I think a lot of times we want to help them. So it's important not to set boundaries with the person that, um, you know, is being abused as a supporter um, to support them in whatever decisions they're making to keep trying to provide them resources and find out what's keeping them in the relationship, um, you know, because barriers can um, be met. Um, with those and negated, but um, just definitely to support them, to continue being there um, and to continue to try and get them the assistance that they need. Tiffany Allison, thank you so much. Thank you. Tiffany Allison is a domestic violence survivor. She is the founder and president of the Soaring Hearts Foundation. Lindsay, as I mentioned earlier, we've had a lot of conversations in the media, in the public, and a lot of forums taking place about sexual assault and the the Me Too hashtag. Mm -hmm. How do you feel these kind of conversations are changing our culture when we think about sexual assault, including domestic violence? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think when somebody stands up and is brave enough to tell their story um like tiffany is here um like we're seeing publicly when people are willing to stand up um it's kind of creating a it's really creating an impact where more and more people are feeling confident to do the same um you know i think the one thing that we need to remember is 
a survivor is probably one of the strongest people you'll ever meet in your life. And we have a tendency as um, a society to see a survivor as someone who's weak. We have a tendency to blame the victim. Um, the question that is always asked is, why Why would someone stay? We need to change that conversation and remember that a survivor is enduring something that we we can't even several of us can't even begin to imagine what would happen. But when they decide to stand up, they decide to use their voice. It's beyond powerful. And as more and more people come forward and feel confident and find support with situations and instances that have happened to them that have violated them in any way, um, I believe we have an opportunity right now to really see change. Raising awareness about abuse is one thing. Prevention is is something else. Do you feel like we're doing enough to educate people to prevent this kind of violence? We can always do more. Um, But again, I think that, you know, nationally we're in a place where more and more people are open to having the conversation. Um, We have to hold people accountable. Um, We need to remember that when a survivor speaks, um, we need to believe them. We don't need to question them. Um, And as we do that and more people feel more confident, I think that we do have the possibility of one day looking, um, coming to a place where domestic violence um, won't be as prevalent as it is today. But there's always going to be more to do. We have a lot of work ahead of us. um, But I think in Iowa specifically, We've done a lot. Um, We've come a long way. We've helped numerous, numerous survivors. Um, And we're going to keep going. Lindsay Pingle is Director of Community Engagement at the Iowa Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I also spoke with Toria Jones, sexual assault advocate for Webster County at Crisis Intervention Service, Tiffany Allison, founder and president of the Soaring Hearts Foundation and a survivor of domestic violence, and Hugh Fahm. Assistant Director of Monsoon United Asian Women of Iowa. We've been talking about domestic violence today, and if you or someone you love needs help, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio, produced by Lindsay Moon, Caitlin Harrop, and Emily Woodbury. I'm Charity Nebbe.